Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Yeah, so I just uh, finished uh, re-watching it and made it to the end. Where the, the, there's a really good stunt fall. I don't know if you caught that when the headless body of the warlock rolls down the steps, and it's a, it's obviously not a dummy. It's a stunt man oh, yeah, in a yeah. headless suit. He's got mm-hmm. the legs going all over, so he obviously can't see. I think the effects in this movie are better than they should have been uh, in some regards. Like mm. I, I like the scenes where there's a the, the lifting of the head. I've you know yeah. I, I'm, I'm something of a uh, I'm not, well, I wouldn't say I'm a connoisseur, but I, 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 put a, I pay a lot of attention whenever there's a beheading and there's a head being handled in a film because I'm mm-hmm. always curious, like, how good is it going to look? Um, how are they going to do it? Are they going to do the dummy head? Are they going to do, like, uh-huh. um, you know, sh- shooting an actual head the right way and making it look like it's detached? And they did a mix here that mostly worked pretty well. I've seen it look rougher <laughs> in more expensive movies. Well, it depends what you mean by well. I, I do agree, though. I found, I think, literally every scene with the severed head hilarious. <laughs> well, it is inherent. Yeah, there's something inherently uh, hilarious about it, too. Uh, you know, especially given the seriousness with which it is approached. Did we already start the episode? Hey, hello, are you listening? Oh, hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. My name's Rob Lamb. <laughs> and I'm Joe McCormick. Yeah, we were just talking a little bit about uh, about beheadings in movies, uh, disembodied heads, the living head um, of the beheaded, because 
that's what we have in today's film in 1973's Horror Rises from the Tomb. Rob, I feel like this is the third or fourth early 70s Spanish horror movie you have picked. Uh, what, what, <laughs> what, what's got you going down this road? How, how'd you end up in, in, in 70s Spain? Oh, I don't, there's just something about uh, this this whole realm of uh, of horror filmmaking. There's just some really there's some great stuff here, and there's a lot of great stuff that I haven't seen. So um, it's it's exciting to me because the the film we're talking about here today, Horror Rises from the Tomb, is considered a a classic of '70s Spanish horror. Like this is mm. a this film's a big deal. So uh-huh. um, I had not seen it previously. Uh, so it was uh, it, it it was it was one I was it was interested in. I was reading the the synopsis, and I was like, "All right, as long as this one sort of stays within the parameters, uh, this could be the film for this week." And lo and behold, it was. Well, so I didn't know anything about this movie going in, but I was I was certainly tempted when you uh, when you shared with me. I think a user review you came across on some website that. Uh, essentially made it seem like this may in fact have also been an ego trip for a particular writer slash actor. Yeah, there are accounts of Paul Nashi, the the star and writer here and um in his um his his ego. Uh, I have I have seen uh, that written about. And yeah, this is uh, uh I ran across this uh, this particular write up on Letterboxd. Uh, letterboxd.com uh, that's l e t t e r b o x d that's a great mm-hmm. uh, uh, website to go to if you want listings of films, lists of films. And hey, we are on there. We have uh, an account under the username Weird House, and you can go there and see all the films that we've talked about uh, in a nice visual display. And I also have links to the podcast episodes on there. But anyway, this particular review, yeah, uh, a user by the name of, uh, their name is spelled like Lou, L-O-U, but then it says rhymes with wow. So I guess it's Lau. Um, mm. Lau writes, when Paul Nashi wrote this movie about medieval Paul Nashi getting decapitated because of alleged Satanist practices, he knew it was really about the executioners being jealous of medieval Paul Nashi's good looks slash him being irresistible to women everywhere. <laughs> when it came time for Paul Nashi to ride a hero into the story to save everyone and their wives from the clutches of medieval Paul Nashi, he conjured up dreamy present-day hunk. Paul Nashi. He knew that even if dreamy Paul Nashi wouldn't be able to defeat medieval Paul Nashi, he would at least be recognized as the hero dreamy Paul Nashi really is. I'd say that's about right. Uh, so this movie, it was not directed by Paul Nashi, but written by Paul Nashi and starring Paul Nashi in at least three different roles. That's right. Um, now, I think this, I, I would critique this, uh, this, this, re- this review is hilarious, and I love it, uh, uh-huh. but it's not 100% accurate in, ter- in terms of, um, of what we get out of the, the Paul Nashies, and we'll get into that, the different Paul Nashy characters. There's really one dreamy Paul Nashy character in this film, uh, and he's pretty magical. So, I was watching this movie on a streaming service that is supported by ad breaks, and I was deeply intrigued by the fact that the movie has major themes of a floating severed warlock head dripping neck blood on things, including like mm-hmm. a painting in the process of being painted. And so, so we'd have the head, it would dribble some neck blood and then we would cut to commercial and the commercials are all for paper towels and other cleaning products. Is this a coincidence or has ad targeting got this good? Like they can detect <laughs> the, uh, the contents of the film and adjust ads accordingly. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I mean, you know, when stains are at their worst, such as from dripping heads, uh, you need a, a quality paper towel. 
The other thing about the streaming service that I thought was funny was that it said this movie is rated TV-14 despite it being absolutely wall-to-wall severed heads, <laughs> gratuitous nudity, and dripping blood all over the place. That's right. This maybe is, maybe that's like is... Euro rating standards. I don't know. <laughs> maybe so. Yeah, this is not a film for, for the children. Um, though I have read that there is a quote-unquote clothed cut of this. Uh, so they might have shot some alternate scenes in which various characters are clothed instead of in various states of nudity. Um, but it would be an entirely different film that way. So I'm, I'm not sure I can recommend that even if you can find that cut. Another thing I will say about my experience of watching The Horror Rises from the Tomb is that it had two features which may seem at odds with each other, but were both simultaneously true. <laughs> One is that the plot is extremely simple. There are not a lot of like twists and turns and machinations. And at the same time, at least half of the scenes in this movie, I had no idea what was going on. By that, I mean, I could not tell you who some, at least some of the characters on screen were, how they arrived at what they're doing, why they're doing it, or what it means. Yeah, there were there were a few scenes in this where I think I watched them three times and then yeah. consulted a, a plot summary to figure out exactly what the characters were attempting to do. Uh-huh, yeah. I, I really, in the first half, had a hard time keeping the different characters and their relationships straight. I did not know who was who. Until until the, the warlock magic really starts happening in the second half, then I guess it gets easier to follow. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, this is a movie about the ultimate occult power couple coming back from the dead uh, uh-huh. to just tear it up. And so once they're back and in action, you're, you're 100% on board. Uh, you, you, can, you basically know where things are going and you can follow the chaos. Uh, but you have to get up to that point and, and uh, it can be a little confusing, but never boring uh, getting right. there. It's like the Sonny and share of Satanism rise from the grave in order to get revenge on the, what, the descendants of the Inquisitors who put them to the sword? Yes, but also, I think they just they just want to consume human hearts, drink blood, worship Satan, and so forth. Yeah. Uh, but in the, the parts where I had no idea what was going on, I think part of that is dialogue and dubbing. Like, this movie did have that quality of, I would literally be watching a scene with my full attention. I'm not on my phone. I'm not distracted. Full attention. But then afterwards, I could not summarize what anybody said in the scene. Uh, so, there, there's a bit of that. But then another part, I think, that made it a little hard to follow is that the cinematography drifts more toward that dreamy style that you would see in like a Fulci movie, mm. where I think often our brains are trained, to, we pick up on certain cues of how a scene looks and sounds and like, ah, this feels more like a dream sequence. I don't need to pay close attention to the plot because it's, you know, it's, it's, it's dreamy mode, except this actually is just the physical reality of the narrative. The world of the living is a dream of the dead. <laughs> uh, which is probably not true, but that sounds like the logic you would hear in a 70s horror trailer, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, I think when it comes to, like, the, the, this movie's very memorable, I think, but there is, in terms mm-hmm. of like remembering lines, the most memorable lines for me are some of the dumb things that the, the painter character Maurice says. Um, our occult power couple here, they have plenty of times where they basically just say occult things. And while I don't recall the details, the feel of it resonates. So I would say this is a movie that is more to be felt than comprehended. Uh, and again, I had, I had to go back and watch some things several times just to make sure I was understanding what they were doing. But to be clear, uh, this film rocks. You should see it. 
if you <laughs> want to see it, uh, if, you, if you're like, well, I want to I want to see this for myself before we get into the main episode. Well, let me tell you where you can get it. Um, first of all, in, as far as physical media goes, Shout Factory has the Paul Nashi collection out on uh, on Blu-ray that in, that, in, that has the films in it: uh, uh, Horror Rises from the Tomb, Vengeance of the Zombies, Blue Eyes of the Broken Doll, Night of the Werewolf, and Human Beasts. Uh, you can also pick up Horror Rises from the Tomb on DVD. I watched it on Prime, but it was not great quality, and it was formatted for television. Uh, I think the, the version you watched was on Tubi. It was Letterbox Edition, but of course you're going to have ads that way. So it, you know, it d- depends how you want to play it. I ended up going mm-hmm. back on Tubi and watching some of the scenes again that I needed to revisit. I mean, I'd say it's worth it just for the hilarious ad cutaways. <laughs> but who knows how the, the machine's working there? It may pick up on something else with somebody else's experience, right? Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, the, the basic elevator pitch here is, yeah, I mean, horror rises from the tomb. Don't worry. If you watch this film, horror will rise from the tomb. The ultimate occult power couple won't let death stand in their way. It's a tender love story about a warlock and his head. (laughs) Boy meets girl, boy loses head, boy regains head, boy gets revenge, boy loses head. Well, boy loses, boy loses head, boy loses girl, boy regains head, boy regains girl, boy loses girl, boy loses head. That's the full plot. Dinosaurs eat boy, woman inherits the earth. Yeah. From the dark and mysterious Middle Ages, full of mystery and violence, there now comes to the screen, fear rises from the tomb, a curse which would bring these people to the most terrifying situations. Fear rises from the tomb, with all the mystery and terror of medieval rites and witchcraft. (laughs) The infernal powers of evil, persecuting these defenseless beings. Fear rises from the tomb, a Pro Films production. Directed by Carlos Aurel. Seven moons have passed. Today we shall take them. I want when the supreme day comes that they are sufficiently prepared for the sacrifice. All right, well, let's let's talk a bit about the humans involved in this before we get back into the plot. Uh, so as we, we mentioned already, Paul Nashi did not direct this. Uh, it was directed by Carlos uh, Aurid, who lived 1937 through 2008. Uh, he was a Spanish director of various uh, erotic dramas and Paul Nashi horror films, including Curse of the Devil from 73, Blue Eyes of the Broken Doll from 74, and The Mummy's Revenge from 75. As a producer, he helped bring the films Alien Predator from 86 uh, well, uh, into hold being. hold on. N- not Alien versus Predator, but no. just Alien Predator. Alien Predator. <laughs> Uh, he also produced or was one of the producers on Claudio Fragasso of uh, Troll 2 fame's uh, 1984 film Monster Dog starring Alice Cooper. What? I, I don't <laughs> think I knew about that. Or if oh, I did. Uh, I haven't seen it, but I've seen the, the posters and some stills from it. It looks it looks wonderfully awful. And as you as we were, you might recall from our episode on Troll 2, I mean, Claudio Fragasso took this very seriously, this filmmaking thing. Uh, and, and so I mean, he's exactly the sort of director you want uh, directing a film called Monster Dog starring Alice Cooper. 
So if Troll 2 was a film about how he believed that uh, meat eaters were being persecuted by vegetarians, uh, what is the meaning of Monster Dog? I'm not sure, but if the poster is any indication, he pursues this um, this topic, this subject matter, uh, via some sort of like fleshless killer Doberman. Gross. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so that's the director technically, but I, I don't know. The vibe I get is that pretty much top to bottom, this is the Paul Nashy show. That's right. So who is this guy? So Paul Nashy, yeah, who has story and screenplay credits on this he plays our warlock character, Alaric de Marnac. He also plays, uh, this is complicated, but Alaric's um, traitorous brother, Armand de Marnac. And he also plays Armand's uh, descendant, Hugo de Marnac, in the present. So three different roles. Um, and all of them have a different feel to them. Though it's weird because his descendant character is not like the inheritor of the warlock throne. He, in fact, he basically just treats his own descendant as another enemy. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and uh, you know, the, the, there's a to- there, I feel like there's a different energy to Hugo. I mean, Hugo, the, the, the modern-day Paul Nashy character in this, which, I mean, I mean 1970s, uh, you know, he's still kind of a stylish dude. Uh, but he's also, uh, I mean, he's 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 doomed. He can't stand up to the warlock. Yeah. He's not like, I am the descendant of uh, of Alaric, and therefore I'm the one who can defeat him. No, no, it's, it's not going to go that way at all. No, in fact, he's a doomed skeptic, and he's the guy who, like, doesn't believe in the power of spirit mediums. So, you know, things are not going to end well for him. M- movies mm-hmm. like this do not reward uh, people who don't believe in the supernatural. Yeah. And so, uh, Nash, but also I would say about Nashi's character, This is not unique to him, but he is – this movie has multiple contemporary characters who are very much like turtleneck sweater tucked into (laughs) pants, guys. Yep, yep. Uh, And and yeah, they just – sort of uh, wander into all of this where they're like, yeah, let's have a seance at this old, um, this old estate. Let's call back. Let's see if we can call up the spirit of this dead warlock. That sounds uh-huh. like a good time. We'll have some wine. We'll smoke a little bit. Um, what could possibly go wrong? I would say Paul Nashi's energy as an actor is a strange combination, something I'm not really used to. In one sense, he has very traditional, almost kind of like boxy or rectangular, uh, masculine movie star energy mm-hmm. i'm trying to think of who to compare you know like a like a ed begley senior or something <laughs> um mm-hmm. but then on the other half kind of a weirdo worminess that is almost the likes of peter Lorre. yeah yeah he has his his physicality is um is is interesting to behold yeah because uh because on, on one level i mean he's He's clearly ripped, uh, as we'll discuss. He was—he's a former professional um, weightlifter, uh, mm-hmm. so so he's a—you uh, know—he's he, he's quite a physical specimen. And yes, he—he he, but yet he can—he he does have this kind of wormy quality to him. He, he is a, the natural energy for playing this eternal outsider, this warlock that was beheaded in the past and now has to uh, uh, murder his way into being again in the present. So some of you might be wondering, well, who is Paul Nashi? We're talking about him. He sounds pretty great. Um, well, he is, in many people's words, the Lon Chaney Jr. of Spanish horror cinema. Wow. So he was born uh, uh, Jacinto Molina, uh, but uh, he assumed the name Paul Nashi uh, for, uh, for, for acting. And uh, yeah, he plays three separate characters in this film, also wrote, wrote the screenplay. 
And uh, this is a guy, we can't really appreciate the full richness of Paul Nashi in a single episode of Weird House Cinema, but I feel like this is a really fun film and a great introduction to him at least. So this is a guy who was born into a successful furrier's family during the Spanish Civil War, who then began to pursue a serious adult life of professional weightlifting and architecture. But deep down, he only wanted one thing. He wanted to be the Wolfman. The the Wolfman? The Wolfman. Yeah, I mean, yeah. What from what I've read, like he grew up, you know, idolizing uh, these uh, these old horror movies, and especially the Wolfman roles, the Lon Chaney Jr. sort of roles, and uh, and and fate would deliver him in that direction. So he started out in in various uncredited and sometimes rumored roles in various 1960s Spanish productions, stuff like El Cid, um, an episode of the TV show I Spy. But then in 1968, he wrote and starred in a film that was originally titled Mark of the Werewolf, but then on the American Groundhouse circuit, it had the name Frankenstein's Bloody Terror, in which he played werewolf uh, Valdemar Daninsky uh, for the first of many, many times. So this was a franchise. Yeah, yeah. He did, I think it's like a dozen of these. Wow. With titles like Assignment Terror, The Werewolf versus the Vampire Woman, The Fury of the Wolfman, Dr. Jekyll versus the Werewolf, Curse of the Devil, Night of the Howling Beast, Night of the Werewolf, The Beast and the Magic Sword, Howl of the Devil, uh, Lycanthropus, The Moonlight Murders, and Tomb of the Werewolf. Most of these films are from the 70s and 80s, but they ultimately span five decades. Whoa. And they're, they're not a continuous narrative by any means. Uh, with the plots varying wildly, like there's some where he goes to uh, to Asia and like goes to Tibet and Japan to try and treat his uh, lycanthropy, um, but uh, a number of them look phenomenal and they're just total werewolf uh, features. Well, I feel like this sheds new light on a, a major flub in the movie that uh, really seems like it should have been caught, which is that in the English dub, at least, there's one part where they they try to say the word lycanthropes. Uh, mm-hmm. But instead, they say, I think, Lincoln-thropes, <laughs> like mm. President Lincoln. Huh. Yeah, yeah. I, I noticed that. That was, I actually went back and looked at that on Tubi with the uh, the captions on. And uh, the captions for this one said, you have empires in Lincoln's robes instead of you are vampires and Lincoln-tropes. Lycanthropes. But they said Lincoln-thropes. Yeah. Lincoln-thropes, yeah. <laughs> Lincoln-thropes. The dub says Lincoln-thropes. They mean like, like they're talking about lycanthropy. But yeah. Um, yeah. But, but we'll come back to the, the formal charges against um, Alaric in a bit. Uh, okay. But, but back to, back to Nashi here. Um, mostly it was this werewolf character that he returned to. But the warlock character in this, Alaric, he does come back in a later 1982 film called Panic Beats, apparently, and plays the character once more. Is that about, uh, does he become a disco warlock? What's the beats referred to? I don't know. To? I'm not sure. Comes back from the grave. Uh, but, uh, and, and it may not even be connected. Because like I say, much of many of these werewolf films, it's not like it's a, a concise narrative. It's like, well, let's bring, let's bring this, this guy back again. Let's have another adventure. It doesn't mean it has to actually uh, make sense or be stitched into the grand fabric of the thing. Okay, I see. Like, you can have many Dracula movies, but they're not, like, all direct sequels to each other with continuous uh, or plot continuity. Exactly, yeah. Well, now, but I am thinking Beats, because you look at Nashi as the warlock in this movie, and he does look like he could tear up the dance floor. 
Like yeah. he would get out there in the lights. I mean, he'd be doing the whole what's the you know the pointing dance, the uh, mm-hmm. the the John Travolta one. I know the one. I don't know what it's called. <laughs> okay. So uh, just just a little more more on Nashi here. I, I looked into him a bit. I was reading an article, uh, actually a chapter in a book titled "An Icon Rises from the Grave: The 21st Century Cult Stardom of Paul Nashi," written by Andy Willis. Uh, Willis writes that Nashi was central to, quote, the development, revival, and reinvention of horror cinema in Spain. The paper mostly centers around the cult-like revival of appreciation uh, for, for Nashi late in his life and career as film fans and filmmakers in Spain and beyond began to reevaluate his films. Uh, but it does put, point out that, yeah, he was very much operating in a time when horror was seen as very lowbrow in Spanish cinema. Like, if you had any self-respect, you'd be working in serious cinema. And if you were doing horror, then, like, what are you doing? But what was serious cinema at the time? Peplum movies? Like, the sword and sandal stuff? Yeah, yeah, just serious dramas about history and, and so forth. Uh, no, you know, nothing about... I mean, this is about history, though. This is about an, an historic warlock. Uh, so I don't, I don't know why the, uh, the, the industry was so down on this film at the time. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting. Uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to AstaproAllergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O Allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. 
I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right, well, we'll come back. We'll discuss more about this, uh, this wonderful performance as we continue. <laughs> uh, but there are, there are other human beings we need to mention, at least in passing. Okay. We mentioned earlier, this is a power couple. It's not just Alaric. It's uh, Alaric and Mobile. He has to bring Mobile uh, back to life. Mobile is played by Helga Linné. Uh, Helga is back. She was the the titular Lorelei from the Lorelei's Grasp, uh, the you know the gorgeous redhead German-born actor who made a name for herself mostly in Spanish cinema. Um, both of these films came out in 73. So uh, if you want to hear more about her, go back to that episode. But she was born in 1931, as of this recording, uh, is still, uh, still alive. And um, she worked from 1941 through 2006 and played a lot of uh, femme fatales, characters in horror movies, various genre films. And yeah, it was pretty, pretty big in Spanish cinema. And in this, she once more gets to absolutely slay multiple people and also consume their hearts. Yeah, I was noticing incredible amounts of overlap with the Lorelei's <laughs> grasp. I, I was not prepared for how much these movies would have in common, even down to what looks like it could be just a coincidence, but what looked like the same shooting locations. You're like, talking about like that coastline, that really yes, dreary coastline. Yeah. The dreary lakeside, it looked exactly like the lake in Lorelei's Grasp. And I would almost be surprised if it was not shot in the same place, but maybe, I don't know. I think the actual, I don't know about the, about the, the lake, but the actual estate that we see, I believe, was, uh, was in Paul Nashie's family. Like that was, that was his mm. family's um, uh, estate there that they filmed on. But it's not just that. Okay, so both movies feature Helga Linnae as a kind of, uh, I don't know, 
loosely a vampirus of sorts, some kind mm-hmm. of, you know, creature that comes back from the grave or comes back through history to slash people with fingernails, like in ways that leave these like, you know, parallel slashes on their bodies and then extract their hearts and eat them. The, both movies are about this. Right. Though in the Lorelei, she changes into an actual monster. And mm-hmm. in this movie, she just gets more naked. That's true, but she still does the fingernail slash. She does. She, yeah. There this movie has has Wolverine style slashing. But she's great in this. She really vamps it up. Yes, there are great scenes where she and uh and the warlock are arguing about you know when they're going to eat hearts. Are we going to eat hearts now or are we going to have to eat them later? Yeah. <laughs> what is the plan? When do we when when are, when are we praising Satan right now? Uh, no, we need to wait. There's so many moons we need to wait. The exact details of their plan are maybe a little vague. <laughs> but well, I, uh, She makes a good point. I mean, he's like, no, we need to, we'll do the sacrifice to, to, to Satan later, and then we'll eat hearts then. And I think she makes the point that but if we were hangry until then, we're going to be making bad decisions. So we mm-hmm. need to eat at least one heart now. Yeah. And she's like, honey, we've been dead for a long time. We, we've got to eat. Yeah. All right. So these are these are the two most impressive actors in the film. But we have some other roles worth mentioning. Uh, Emma Cohen plays, uh, who lived 1946 through 2016, plays the character uh, Elvira. Not to be confused with uh, Elvira, uh, the horror host. So Emma Cohen was a Spanish actor, uh, as well as a writer and director. In fact, in 2011, she apparently directed a short film adaptation of uh, Jorge Luis Borges' The, the Aleph. Uh, she was also the longtime partner of Peruvian-born Spanish director Fernando Fernán Gómez uh, till his death. Uh, but she, before this, she did a lot of B-movies and horror films in the 70s, including 75's Night of the Walking Dead, Jess Franco's 1975 Count Dracula. That's one that starred Christopher Lee as Dracula, Herbert Lom as Van Helsing, and Klaus Kinski as, uh, quote-unquote, uh, uh, Renfeard. I don't know why he's been feared in the, uh, the IMDb credits, but he is. Huh. Uh, Cohen also had an uncredited role in 1970s, Nicholas in Alexandria. And uh, yeah, she, in this, she is, mm, she, basically she's, she's our final girl. Uh, mm-hmm. She's the, one of the two daughters of one of the villagers uh, in the place that they go to. Yeah. Now I'm going to, admit that I, I again had a hard time keeping the different characters and the human characters in their relationships straight so if you're asking like who's married to who or whatever i don't know yeah i had to go back and I, like at first i was like i guess this was hugo's wife but it's not no it's not okay. hugo's wife that's a different character entirely uh we'll, we'll summarize all that in a bit okay there were a a, a number of laugh out loud moments uh, for me in this movie, but I would say the biggest one, the best one is a scene where we have a guy who's been seeing visions of, of dark eyes staring at him uh, in, in the night and, and he's, and he can't stop seeing them when he closes his eyes. So he's got to paint. He's a painter and he's like painting on a canvas. And then suddenly above the canvas, appears a laughing severed head that's just going ho 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 <laughs> and it and dripping blood all over the painting and it's so good uh but this painter like his dopiness makes it so much better yes he's haunted by the head of Alaric and he's like I don't know what it is I keep seeing this head I got to paint it I got to paint it uh, and he's yeah. and he's painting this like sub night gallery quality painting you know <laughs> yes um, of um 
of this headless body holding not Alaric's head, but modern Paul Nashi's character's Hugo's head. Uh, uh-huh. it's, it's pretty great. But yeah, this this is the this painter character Maurice was played by Victor Barrera. Uh, I couldn't find any dates for for this actor, but. Yeah, he's a wonderful doomed idiot in this. <laughs> uh, the the character is the 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 actor uh, Barrera appeared in such Spanish films as 1970s In the Folds of the Flesh, uh, the 73 Nashi film Count Dracula's Great Love, and also the Nashi film Hunchback of the Morgue, as well as the 1973 film Green Inferno. Who was Count Dracula's Great Love? I don't know. I haven't <laughs> seen it. it must, I'm guessing. I mean, it could be his career. Uh, you know, he married to his work, right. uh, but I imagine it's it's some it's uh, some woman. Generally, that's probably yeah, going to be the I, way. It's I am married go. to the blood. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, one more thing about uh, Barrera. Uh, he was also in the '73 Judy Geeson uh, film, A Candle for the Devil, and as a director and writer, he did the 1978 film, The Terrorist. He also tucks his turtlenecks into his pants. He does. Yes. Now, we're going to skip on the rest of the actors here, uh, though there are some other fun performances, but uh, skip into the music. Carmelo A. Bernala did the music. He lived 1929 through 2002. And uh, all I have to say is I hope you like creepy organ music and weird percussion sounds because this film is loaded with it. Yeah, it's got this steady, uh, slow, ascending organ melody that just repeats and repeats and repeats. Honestly, it got a little monotonous for me. <laughs> I like. I thought it fit this film like a glove. Uh, uh, I'm not saying it would work in every film. I'm not saying I need a, a copy of it or I'm looking for a, a high-grade vinyl release. But for this film, uh, I thought it worked. Yeah, it's the appropriate vibe. But uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, I mean, you, you'll hear it quite a few times. Uh, now, Bernala here, he was a longtime Spanish composer of many films, including 74's Torment and 73's Count Dracula's Great Love. Oh, he wrote the love theme from Count Dracula's Great Love. <laughs> One assumes. Uh, one more note about a person in this. Uh, there's a special effects. Uh, the special effects were by Antonio Molina. And I don't have dates for him, but he, this is a guy that apparently has been working in special effects since the 1960s, starting with 1964's, uh, this is actually the Barry Sullivan film Pyro, The Thing Without a Face, that we referenced in um, um, our Fiend Without a Face uh, uh, episode. But mm-hmm. Molina here is apparently still working today in Spanish productions, and he even worked on six episodes of Game of Thrones. Wow. He also served as an armor supervisor in the Spain unit for such big films as Wonder Woman 1984 and Terminator Dark Fate. So, kind of mm-hmm. a cool connection there. This is not a film that you watch and you think, wow, I guess they had just tons of money to spend on special effects. No. So, uh, again, as I kind of alluded to earlier, I feel like the effects in this film, such as they are, look pretty good. Though it is that that early 70s Euro style of like very bright red, almost orange blood. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 alarming. Maybe that's why I got the TV-14. Uh, what, you, perhaps, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's bust into the plot a little bit. Joe... Take us back to the mid-15th century. Is that when it is? Mid-15th century? I think they say. I think that's what the narration says, yeah. (laughs) This movie begins with the world's most depressing parade. You're watching like uh, some people kind of tromp through a vast... uh, We see them like on a plain with mountains in the background. So it's the kind of landscape that maybe looks like if it had been the true colors, it would have been beautiful. 
but instead it looks just profoundly, uh, deeply unhappy. And, yeah. uh, and it kind of reminds me of some of the landscapes in Monty Python and the Holy Grail in that yeah. way that like something about the film style and the way the colors come through just makes the landscape very drab and unpleasant. Mm-hmm. But it's fitting, especially when we find out what this um, procession is about. It's about uh, killing and tormenting uh, people accused of sorcery and witchcraft. Right. We, we're here for the execution of a warlock and a witch. Uh, and there's some, there's some narration. You get a voiceover, I think, that's saying like, uh, I don't remember the exact words, but it's basically like France, you know, before indoor plumbing. Wow. Do you, you think war and disease are bad? How about Satan? <laughs> Yeah, superstition, um, ignorance, uh, violence. Uh, they prepare you for all of it here. And the Inquisitor's troops here look to me like Two-Face's henchmen in Batman Forever. They've got <laughs> these goofy red sock masks over their heads. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that that was really kind of nice. And this is also where we get... it's uh, So, the you know, the warlock and the witch are taken to the place of execution. I don't know why it needed to be in the middle of this vast field with m- the mountains and the stream. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, that's where they take them. And then there's some kind of, you know, church official or something who reads out the charges to them. Yeah, and I think Maurice's ancestor is one of these people as well. So he technically has a double role. Also, one of these peoples is Alaric's brother, who's kind of like this one-eyed Paul Nashy character with like a smug grin on his face and a scar. Uh, That is Alaric's brother, Armand, uh, who is, it's implied here that he kind of helped do his brother in here. So, yeah, they're, but they're both played by Nashi. So it's Nashi punishing Nashi. Yeah. And they read out a full list of charges, uh, which, in addition to you are vampires and lycanthropes, there's you have drunk human blood. Uh, of both the living and the dead, you have eaten flesh. Uh-huh. You have celebrated the black mass with bloody sacrifices of the newborn and of young girls. Uh-huh. You have adored Satan and of followers of his Sabbath. Yes, verbatim, I believe. So yeah, they put the sorcerers to death. Uh, Warlock gets his head chopped off. I don't. They like. I don't know how they kill the witch. They like hang her upside down or something. Yeah, um, and then they they she screams. It seems like they're commencing to flog her, and then cut. Uh, yeah, she's presumed dead. Now here's the thing we discover later. I, I don't know why this is when we find their bodies later in the movie. So this is going to be hundreds of years later. Uh, obviously, they want to be resurrected from the dead, but Paul Nashi's body. He's like an incorruptible saint. Like his body is all there. It still looks like, you know, totally fresh. And his head looks totally fresh. Meanwhile, uh, Helga Linnae's body is a skeleton with a wig on it. Yeah, different different supernatural. Well, I guess here's the thing. He is the warlock. He is the one uh, whose body is, uh, is flowing with unnatural energies. Um, she is uh, his, his great love. And therefore, she benefits from this sorcery, but she and she herself is a different type of entity. And later on in the film, we we had spelled out directly that there there's slightly different rules for for killing one versus the other. Mm-hmm. Oh, by the way, that opening execution is carried out via a decree from uh, Carcassonne, which is was a French fortified city, and of course is also the name of a great German tile based board game which absolutely does not have a Warlock execution expansion, but I think clearly needs one. Oh, I never played it. What's a German style? Is that like uh, Settlers of Catan kind of stuff? Yeah, yeah. Um, This one is one, it's a very calming, very relaxing board game. It's all about building walled cities, 
and uh, connecting them with roads, with mm-hmm. tiles. So it kind of you know, build it as you go, and then at the end you score everything. And yeah, yeah it's it's very cool. Okay, cut to the present day, and then Robin, I'm going to need some help here. Who okay. who are the the people? Our main characters. We we have the Paul Nashy guy, and we have Maurice the painter. And then we have two women and then some other people. Yeah, this was fair. I had to go back and put all this together again. But okay, we have okay. Uh, we have Alaric's descendant. Um, and well, technically Armand's descendant, but also I guess Alaric's descendant. This is modern day contemporary uh, Paul Nashi, Hugo, and his gal is Sylvia. Okay. Then we have Hugo's painter friend, Maurice, who is also, he's a descendant of one of the witch hunters or executors here. Mm-hmm. And his gal is Paula. Okay, is so is are Sylvia and Hugo the ones where Sylvia's like, why don't we get married? And, and Hugo's like, because I'm Paul Nashi. Basically, yeah. And I don't really remember what Maurice and Paula's whole vibe is other than they love each other. Yeah. And ba- and so basically, they're all like, uh, like, hey, we should. Uh, I forget exactly how they reach this point. Maybe this little yeah, research is going on. But they're like, <laughs> we should go out to the country to um, to Hugo's uh, uh, chalet out there, and uh, we should ha- we should get this. Uh, we should hire somebody to do a séance so we can get in touch with this head. Which, by the way. Uh, Maurice keeps seeing in his dreams and in his visions as he's drawn to paint grotesque scenes of decapitation. Well, now, wait, I thought they did the seance before they went to the chalet. Don't they do the seance while they're still hanging out? They're still in the city, I think. That's right. Okay, so they do the, yes, they do the seance first, and that's the inspiration to then go out into the country and try to find uh, the body and the head of Alaric, which which are deposited in different places. Yeah, so I think Maurice is like, I'm seeing this head in my dreams, and I'm painting it, and I'm not very smart. And Hugo's like, oh, I don't believe in heads. And then they're <laughs> like, well, let's have a seance, and the, that'll tell us what to do. And then the medium at the seance is like, there's a severed head that you must dig up, and it's up at your up in the village at your chalet. And yeah, that's the body's buried I in think. the cloisters, head is in the crypt of the monastery. And yeah, our, our, our city humans here are here like, well, we got to get these two back together again. Let's get this head <laughs> and this body back together. And yeah. so they, they set out. Only good can come from it. Yeah. Uh, they, I remember they argue about this is one of the scenes where Hugo is skeptical because yeah. they're like, you, you must believe what Madame Irina said uh, because, uh, you know, a, a spirit was obviously choking her from beyond the grave. And um, mm-hmm. Hugo's like, oh, it must have been she must have put on makeup to show those bruises. But then why are they trying to resurrect a spirit that was choking somebody? <laughs> that seems like I don't know that that's red flag number one that like you should not resurrect the spirit. Yeah, I think so. But what do they do? They jump in the car, they head out into the countryside. And uh, and here we kind of get into the, we initially get into sort of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre territory of, oh, the city folks have come out into the country, and now they're encountering country folk who are suspicious and dangerous. Well, and yeah, and it was weirdly more... uh I don't know, there's politics within this village or something. So, like, Mm -hmm. they get attacked on the road by bandits. And then some other guys show up, and they're like, hey, these are the bandits. And they catch the bandits and just, like, vigilante justice murder them. But then also, Mm -hmm. I think the vigilantes then are essentially bandits also. And they try to extort money from, from the heroes. 
Yeah, and end up selling them a car because they I end up so. yeah with the when the bandits initially attack they end up wrecking the car and they're like well, we'll sell you one for three thousand and of course the lead bandit is is watching as uh, Hugo busts out this big roll of money and you know he's eyeballing it like ooh I'm definitely going to rob these people later yeah and that is indeed what they are plotting to do later we'll come back so to here that, I though. got I got really confused about how this was happening but do. If I'm under, do like Hugo and the rest of them hire the villagers to just dig up all around this ancient <laughs> church and find they're looking for a box that has a warlock head in it? Yeah, yeah. And I think the villagers um, are kind of interested in it because there's also talk of there being some sort of a treasure. So they're like, yeah, we'll help you dig this up. We'll even go to that place where they say a demon stalks at night. So they're this weird mix of of very superstitious, but also, you know, up for whatever. Um, one of the villagers here that we meet is this, uh, um, this, this Alan character. Uh, and he, this is the, he has two da- he has two daughters. One is uh, Chantal and the other is Elvira. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. I didn't know where some of these characters came from, but so some of the villagers, they find a box, they like dig it up. And I, Again, correct me if I'm wrong. I think they think it's treasure, so they get real excited and they open it up, like they blowtorch the lock and and crack mm-hmm. it open. But when they crack it open, it's not treasure; it is a warlock head. And then the warlock head hypnotizes them and turns them into uh, like like murderers. Yeah, yeah. Alaric's head hypnotizes them, and and particularly hypnotizes Alan here, uh, the, the the father of Elvira. And has him go around with this huge, scary scythe, uh, this this wonderful, crooked um, uh, cutting implement uh, that, that, again, I think is quite scary, and has him going around butchering people with that. Yeah, so for a while here, there just seems to be kind of like random roaming uh, sickle guys, mm-hmm. and they are there. some people are just getting killed, and other people are getting hypnotized to go work for the warlock head, the head. Right. Because it's not yeah. a full warlock yet. It's li- In fact, the the most hilarious detail is that they there's like a scene where they literally go down into the crypt, and they start taking orders from the warlock head. He's like, he can't move his head, so it's really funny like how far his his eyes move back and forth when he's looking yeah. at the different people like what's this now you know you must do this very uh you know templar-esque in terms of you know the the charges that were leveled against the the templars uh, about uh, the worship of decapitated heads and uh, hmm. uh reminds me a little bit of uh, the treatment of this idea in c.s lewis's uh, that hideous strength as well hmm today's episode is brought to you by visible If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. 
Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. But, uh, but yeah, the, the head needs the body. It needs people to help with the body. And some blood needs to be spilled on the, along the way. And so we do get a series of sickle murders, including Alan killing his own daughter, Chantel, Chantel here, in a pretty terrifying scene. This is a scene I had to watch a couple of times because I thought it, it, it ended up being uh, you know, blocked in, you know, in a way that, uh, and shot in a way that, was, that I found rather effective. Uh, there's, there's a certain art to having your, your brutal 
you know, Jallo style murders in a film. And, uh, and they don't always work. Sometimes they come off uh, very fake or they come off more about showing the blood than sort of, uh, you know, teasing the idea of the violence. So this is not one of those scenes where we see a lot of like parting of flesh and see heart getting ripped out and so forth. But there's just like this sudden attack and then the sickle comes out and there's a sound effect. Uh, I thought it worked really well. Oh, but there is the latter in this movie. There's plenty yes, of that yes. where there's it scenes has, where like there's one where Helga Linné literally just like reaches into a guy's chest cavity with her fingers and pries his chest apart to get that heart. Yeah. The chest cat. This is one of those films where, yeah, human flesh is just like putty to the undead uh, and they can just rip right in there and pull out any organ they want. This is another sequence, though, where I was like, when people were getting sickled, I did not know who was who. And I was confused when somebody like, it seems like somebody turns up dead. And then the next scene, somebody goes, well, she's sleeping now. And I was like, <laughs> well, but wasn't she dead? But then I think maybe they're talking about another character who was present. So I, I don't know. Yeah, this is one of those films, too, where on one hand, the script was allegedly written in like two days. Mm -hmm. on, <laughs> uh, but on the other hand, too, it's like we're dealing with the Grindhouse era dubbing, where it wasn't really about uh, necessarily making sure that all the intricacies of the of the original dialogue are maintained. It's about getting that product out, right? So at some point after this, there is a scene where uh, both Sylvia and Maurice uh, get hypnotized to go work for the warlock, right? So mm -hmm. like Maurice goes out walking and then he gets hypnotized by hypnotized Sylvia and they, they all end up going down into the crypt. And that's where the warlock head starts talking to them. This was another laugh out loud scene for me. Again, anytime the head is talking without the body, I, I found it very funny and he gives mm -hmm. a full bond villain monologue. Uh, but as a severed head sitting in a box talking and yeah. I had to transcribe this, I thought it was great. So it is like, uh, you Maurice, uh, he says the last name. I don't remember what it is. You know, you, Maurice, with the blood of my enemies running through your veins, you will serve and help me accomplish my vengeance. Today, the faithful companion, Mobile de uh, Lacrae, will return. And in the space of seven moons, and when the heavens are propitious, our power will be at its maximum strength so that we can exterminate all those who executed us. And our unbounded hatred will make all mankind tremble, and thereby we will thus be avenged. <laughs> All right, sounds like a plan. <laughs> and thereby we will thus be avenged. <laughs> I think this warlock in his day job may have been a lawyer. <laughs> you know, it's very contracty kind of language. Well, you know, back I mean I think that's that's fair. Back in the day, like what was a warlock but a lawyer who dealt mainly with one client. Uh, that being the, um, the, the the Lord of yeah. the Pit himself, uh, uh, Lord Satan. Uh, but also in the scene, this is, I think, the resurrection scene where, where the warlock and uh, Mobile are sort of brought back. So, like, they put the warlock's head back on his body, and mm -hmm. somehow they turn Mobile from a skeleton with a wig on into Helga Linné. Oh, God, this is, scene is great. Yes, yeah, so... The, the resurrected um, Alaric here, he's, he's one piece again, he places the unconscious Sylvia upon the skeletal remains in the casket, slices open her chest, and then he kind of um, 
necrophilatically resurrects Mabel, uh, Mabel. She, he like kind of like lays on top of these two bodies in the casket. And then the next shot is, uh, uh, Mabel is rising up out of the casket, like the bones of, uh, her old bones, like spilling to the side and she's back baby. And then Alaric, um, kills, um, uh, Alan and cuts out his heart. So just a great sequence of events here. <laughs> I guess. Like I say, they're they're a, they're a power couple. You can't help oh, yeah. but feel their energy and get behind them here. Yeah, they're and they're clearly happy to be reunited. Uh, they're, yeah. they're ready to go do copious evil together. Yes. <laughs> uh, so I think there's like a scene where they they're getting. I, it was not clear, but they're like getting revenge on the descendants of the people who who executed them. I think they're just going and like attacking uh, random villagers. I guess I guess this was part of the vengeance, or it might have just be, be, been a situation of like we got to power up and eat more hearts. Uh-huh. But yeah, there's there are these uh, wonderful scenes where Alaric and Mabel go off to love up and kill other characters. I'm not sure these are necessarily characters that we had met before. Uh, Mabel finds a young villager dude. She strips nude, and he gets nude, and then she back scratches him to death. Yep. And then Alaric's occult charisma causes a villager woman to strip nude. So he strips nude. And this is when we get to see physique by Nashi here. And then they <laughs> climb into bed together, cut to villager dude with his back slashed, cut to uh, nude woman dead with her heart cut out. I think this is a John Saxon situation, though, where like Nashi clearly he's like, yeah. I, I got to show my chest in this movie. People need yeah. to see these muscles. Yeah. Um, so he found ways to work it in. I, I had, it also made me look up, as with John Saxon, I had to look up old uh, bodybuilding photographs. And yeah, you see, some, I found some old Paul Nashie shots of him in like full bodybuilder uh, mode. And uh, yeah, pretty impressive. Okay, now there's some like uh, magic dynamics where there's like a, a magical amulet that pops up sometime around here in the movie. And I was trying my hardest to figure out, did we already know something about this? Or is this just out of nowhere? Like, oh, yeah, there is a, <laughs> an amulet that will defeat the warlock. Yeah, this kind of comes out of nowhere, as I recall. Elvira, the local girl. Uh, and ultimately, she's going to be our, our final girl here. She's like, oh, by the way, I just remembered something. There's this Thor's hammer, hammer amulet, and it can destroy powerful undead creatures. Oh. <laughs> so useful information to suddenly have. And, um, and also, we later learn, and I don't remember how we learned this, but we learn that Thor's hammer uh, will not outright destroy a female undead, a female resurrected being. No, for that, you need a long silver needle. Right. So, yeah, the, the hammer only works on Paul Nashi, the warlock Paul Nashi. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I remember how they find this out. They open up a book and they're reading oh. the book. And I'm like, what is this book? I don't That's know right. if they ever explain what the book is. They just have a book that tells you how to kill the warlock. This was the research portion of the movie. I forgot about this. Uh, but so there is a scene where uh, after this, like the remaining humans include Hugo, who is you know, unhypnotized at this point. That's, that's norm. That's regular Paul Nashi. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and Elvira, and I think maybe somebody else, I don't know. So zombies attack the house and, uh, and it's really, this was also very funny because I think we get Alan or Elaine, the, uh, the guy from the village talking to Elvira and he's like, Elvira, my daughter, open the door. And he's, he sounds <laughs> like Dracula, but she's like, Oh dad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but when the zombies get into the house, they are vocal fry zombies. They are just wandering the halls, going. Uh, 
uh, <laughs> nonstop until uh, there's a torch standoff. Paul Nashi lights up a torch and waves it at them. He does an awful lot of waving that torch. That goes on for a mm-hmm. while. And eventually he gets them out of the house. He's like, shoo, shoo. And, you know, they get out of the door. And then he, I think, tries to burn them, but I don't know if it exactly works because later he's like looking for their bodies in the lake or something. He catch there's a there's a brief um, Burning Man stunt here where he catches one of the uh, one of the the zombies on fire, or at least catches the pants in the back on fire. Uh huh. So uh, yeah, basically Night of the Living Dead scenario here with dead villagers. They're able to successfully successfully fight them off until dawn. After this, Maurice comes back, the painter guy, and he's like, well, I'm not hypnotized by the warlock anymore. Um, And uh, Hugo's like, oh, great. Well, uh, then I need you to go help me do something. We're going to need an axe and some wood. And then he says to Elvira, so they're leaving the house. And he's like, you stay here. It's going, this is a direct quote, it's going to be disagreeable. You'll be in no danger, even if you're alone. (laughs) What's the basis for that? I guess it's because it's it's daytime. Uh, the sun is oh. out. Yeah. Oh, that could be it. And she shouldn't see what they're going to do. What they are going to do, this is the scene, the, the following sequence, I, I think I watched three different times and finally consulted a summary uh, to, to really nail down what they were trying to do in this sequence. What, well, what are they trying to do? They, so they go to the, to the lake, and the lake is making bubbling tar pit sounds, and I don't yeah. know why. But that, they, have, the they have an axe, and they uh-huh. have firewood, and they have like a big um, long pole with a hook on it, like they're going to drag the lake. Apparently, they have come out here to find the bodies of the zombies from last night, any remaining bodies, and burn them. But they don't quite get to do that because uh, Maurice was not so unpossessed after all. Looks like this was all a trap. That's right. Uh, A brutal betrayal in which Maurice, possessed Maurice, kills Hugo with a shotgun. So this is regular Paul Nashi is dead now. Only warlock Paul Nashi remains. Right. And again, I was kind of surprised by this because I thought it was going to ultimately be Nashi versus Nashi. But instead, no, only Alaric remains. But, uh, however, I think Maurice is genuinely awakened from his his uh, hypnotized state by the Thor's hammer amulet. Like, I think, mm-hmm. uh, what, what's her name? Uh, Elvira presses that against him, and then mm-hmm. he's like, oh, I'm good now. And <laughs> then that's when they read the book. They find they just start reading a book, and it tells them how to kill warlocks and zombies and it, uh, the silver needle and all that. Meanwhile, this is when we get the argument between the warlock and Helga Linnae about when they should eat hearts. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I will eat hearts later, but I'm hungry now. And they settle this by going out to find the uh, the bandits or the vigilantes from earlier who are camped out uh, with a fire by the riverbank. And mm-hmm. they just say, hi, we're going to eat your hearts now. And they do. This is where uh, <laughs> Mobile like, rips the dude's chest open with her hands. Nice. So many chests get ripped open in this film. And this all leads up to our final showdown. So on one hand, we have, um, we have Maurice and we have Elvira. And then we also have Alaric and Mabel um, and uh, Elvira and, uh, and Maurice. They have the weapons now. They, they, they feel like they know what they, they need to do. They have the amulet. They have the needle. And so uh, the battle begins uh, basically the way this is. I thought, thought this was a nice final showdown. But ultimately, Maurice and Alaric both throw items at each other at the same time. Maurice is throwing the Thor amulet uh, and Alaric is throwing an axe. So Maurice is killed by the axe. Uh, meanwhile, the amulet hits Alaric and wounds him. Uh, 
Elvira is fighting Mabel and stabs her with a silver needle, which just uh, destroys her. And then Elvira picks up the amulet and presses it to the wounded Alaric's head. And this results in a nice dramatic death sequence for Paul Nashi's Alaric. So Elvira survives the warlock horror. That's right. Alaric, uh, he like falls to his knees, his head falls off, his body and his head tumble down some stairs and then just burn to a crisp. They end up looking, they're kind of like a smoldering uh, orange newspapers, it looks like. Yeah. And then, uh, and then Elvira, in kind of a daze, she wanders back down to the lake and she throws uh, the Thor amulet into the water. And that's the end of the movie. Now, that's the. I was confused by that. Why'd she throw the amulet in the water? The amulet wasn't bad. The amulet protected them from evil. How does she know that there isn't, that she's not going to need that again? I don't know. I mean, she seemed to think it belonged there. I don't know if she was like, I've had enough of this. I'm throwing this into the water. If this is like throwing Goose's dog tags into the ocean and Top Gun. (laughs) I don't know if this is like Excalibur needs to be returned to the lake. And so she's throwing those and throwing it into the lake. I'm not sure exactly what the, the rationale was here, other than to have a kind of haunting, ambiguous ending to the whole affair. Hmm. Yeah. Which is sort of what we had in the Lorelei's grasp. We had a haunting, ambiguous ending by the by the lakeshore. That's right, yeah. Except this movie, unlike Lorelei's grasp, does not have a doomed monster romance component. It does not have, like, the, the human falls in love with a monster. If there right. is a love story, it's the love story between two evil monsters. And, uh, right. and unfortunately, they are both, uh, they are both thwarted by, by bumbling humans in the end. Well, Alaric is clearly upset when his loved one dies again. Like, we do get yeah. a moment of him reacting to that. And I felt bad for him. Because, again, I was 100% behind this power couple. Um, I'm not sure what their, their, their modern power couple name would be, uh, combining Alaric and Mabel. Uh, I'll leave Ma- that for... Malaric, yeah. Malaric, Team Malaric, yeah. Um, I was 100% on Team Malaric. So, yeah, I was a little, a little sad when, when, uh, when, when things went down the way they, they did. I think Nashi's look as the warlock is far superior to his look as a modern day man. So yeah, oh, definitely. On, yeah, on one hand, he's wearing this gross pale makeup, and he always looks sweaty, and he's got this fake mm-hmm. beard, and he's got the the cool cape and everything, and that all just gels. That works. And the other and sometimes version, there's of, an actual gel too. There's that yes. actual <laughs> red gel or purple gel. So he yeah. has this demonic light to him, and yeah, he's just got this sardonic look on his face. Absolutely that, love this look. That look, that look works, and when you compare that to his look as the modern man who tucks his turtleneck in, it's just it's not the same, right? <laughs> oh, one before we close out, one more Maurice moment that I love. There's a p- part earlier in the film where they've gone out into the country, and he comes back from town. I'm not sure what he was doing in town, but he's talking to Hugo, and he's like, "Yeah, this place sucks." Like I went into town, and the, the kids were throwing rocks at me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I loved it. I did not know what that meant, but it was funny. <laughs> All right. The movie is Horror Rises from the Tomb. Uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. At some point in the future, I may have to come back and, and look around at some of these Paul Nashie werewolf films and figure out what might be the Paul Nashie werewolf film to watch. I'm not sure. But if anyone out there has any ideas, uh, feel free to write in and let us know. 
All right. In the meantime, if you want to listen to other Weird House Cinema episodes, you'll find them in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed every Friday. We're mainly a science uh, podcast, but once a week we like to set aside everything that's serious and just talk about a weird film. Uh, so, yeah, get that wherever you get your podcast. If you want a full list of the movies we've covered, uh, there are two places you can go for that, aside from the, the episode feed. Uh, you can go to Letterbox. that's L-E-T-T-E-R-B-O-X-D. And if you look up the account Weird House, uh, you'll find a list there with all the movies in there. So you can get this nice visual of everything that we've covered and sometimes a, a glimpse at what we're going to cover. I also blog about these uh, at a personal blog titled Samuda Music, so you can go there as well. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, uh, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.